So up here on the slides, just by way of reminder, we're drawn to the close. There's a few more weeks left in this course. But if you've been with us all the way along, beginning back last fall, we have been discovering, we have been exploring what does the Bible have to say about what it means to be human, what it means to be created in the image of God. And that actually is the biblical definition of what it means to be human. We are not the products of chance. We are not the products of evolution. We are the products of creation by God. So we are not an animal species. The definition of humanity, according to scripture, is that we are the image of God. Bears and lions and fish are not the image of God. People are. And so we spent time looking at the scriptural warrant and what that means. Then we spent a lot of time looking at to be created in the image of God includes being embodied. And one of the key things that was important here is that we recognize that we live in a day and age of neo-Gnosticism. That's a fancy way of saying that in our culture, the software, we have software and hardware, right? Physical and spiritual. And in our day and age, most people disregard the fact that we have bodies and what you feel on the inside, call it your spirit, call it your psyche, whatever the people call it, that trumps what you are physically. And that became important when we got to this third point. And this is where we've been spending a whole lot of time to be created in the image of God includes being gendered. And so we looked at the binary creation of male and female, spent a lot of time there, and this is where we still are. So we went from the reality that we've been created male and female, to then asking the question, what is marriage and what is marriage for? Why did God invent it? What are the purposes of marriage? And then we have spent uh, some weeks that marriage is the context for humans to express their sexuality. And so we looked at what sexuality is and what it's for. We saw seven reasons from the Bible why God invented and gifted sexuality to marriage. And then we also spent an evening together talking about sexual sin. And this evening, now is where we pick up again on page 43, is we're talking about a unique species of sexual sin. And we're zeroing in on this, LGBTQ+, because this is the microphone shout of the moment. It's been increasing, especially since the 60s and 70s. Uh, homosexuality is not new, but we live in a moment right now that is unlike any other moment in history uh, in terms of what we're seeing, coercion and more. So we'll, that'll develop as we, as we go along. So that's, that's where we are. So page 43, let me find it. All right, so we're zeroing in on this idea of sexual sin. I have a, just a list of resources that if you want to go in-depth on this, here's a number of books listed in your notes that you can look at, that you can, they're worth your time in thinking very carefully about what the Bible says, why God made things the way he did, and how it intersects with this cultural moment. We want to begin, though, as we talk about the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ plus movement is I want us to think about a war of words. So we live 
um, in a unique day of rhetorical war where words and phrases are used that on the surface sound true, right, and beautiful, but the words, the terms, and the phrases are coercive, they're deceitful, they're lies, and they're Trojan horses. That on the surface, you can't disagree with the statement. So we've talked in the past about hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter. No, no person could possibly disagree with that statement. It is undeniably biblically true. But as that organization, being a neo-Marxist, pro-LGBTQ plus movement, that when you walk around with the protest sign, hashtag BLM, you are pronouncing that movement, you don't realize that you are actually promoting all the ideologies that go well beyond what their definitions of Black Lives Matter means. So, for example, we live in a day when activists are changing dictionary definitions. Hate speech. Hate speech, right? So... Uh, Many in our own congregation, and probably you if you're at NAU, and the, the training you have to receive regarding diversity, equity, inclusion, and microaggressions, and all the terminology that you can't offend people, and there's this notion of hate speech. And hate speech, really what it is, is any speech that says another person is wrong. So on this definition, who would be the greatest hate speech spokesman in the world to ever exist? Jesus Christ. And actually, God. And Jesus is God the Son incarnate. Because God commands, this is Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent of all their sins. And so we live in a day and age where you can't say anybody is wrong. And if you challenge their inner feelings... And, and want to push against it or say that that is sin, you are branded hate speech. You are branded a bigot. You are branded a, well, down here, those who do not celebrate LGBTQ+, if you don't agree, then you are, by definition, on their dictionary, homophobic and transphobic. Right? And phobic means fear. That you're, that you're afraid of something. So you can see the mind game and the word game that's taking place. Because what the gospel does is the gospel tells us that every single human being is guilty of sin. And every single human being is under God's wrath. And every single human being is going to go to hell. But God clothed himself in human flesh. Came down, God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. Lived and died on the cross for all of our sins. And he rose from the grave. And any person who repents of their sins agrees with Jesus. So part of repentance is saying, Jesus is right, I am wrong, and I'm going to change my desires and attitudes and thinking to conform with him, not me. But we live in a world that says, no, you must conform to my image. You must conform to my desires and more. So hate speech is any speech that says another person is wrong or does not celebrate the cultural minority. So not just sexual minorities, but any, any minority that's not celebrated. And, and so this is the moment that we live in. And this is why 
there's bills that have already been passed in Canada that outlaw not just churches and pastors, but parents speaking to their children who are confused about their sexual identity that any communication from a parent to kids in Canada that does not encourage and move them towards their feelings, but no, actually you are a boy, you are a girl, or something along those lines, you can get put in jail for that. And so uh, that very well could be a warning for us. And so this, this entire talk very well falls under the umbrella of what they would say is hate speech. And the sad irony is this is what Jesus would call love speech because it's speaking the truth in love and saying this is true. Your eternal soul matters and all sins send to hell. But in this case, because there's a certain species of sin that must be celebrated and championed, we have to speak against it and expose it for what scripture says. Here's a, a text, John 8, 31 and following, a couple different verses spliced together. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The only place for freedom and true happiness is in the word of Christ. Nowhere else. There is no other guru, sage, politician. There is no amount of people who can assemble together and vote to cast a truth. Jesus is the truth, and only Jesus' truth sets you free. And that begins by agreeing with him, putting off our sins, and putting on his ways in the power of the Spirit. He continues in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So because our cultural moment wants to celebrate all kinds of sins, walking in sin is never freeing. The idea is that if I can just be true to my inner self, then I'm authentic and then I'm walking freely. Jesus is clear. You're simply a slave and you are displaying your species of sin in the way that you live your life. Sin is always enslaving. Sin is never life-giving. Sin is never uh, freeing. Sin is always life-taking. And all sin leads to hell. And only Jesus can redeem and liberate from all sin. So if we begin to ask the question, why? Why do people, why, why is it this moment of, of activism and celebration? We're going to talk about it for a little bit now. But here in John 3.16 and following, right, here's the famous passage about God sending Jesus because he loved the world to save us. But down here, when people hear this news, this is what people do with the John 3.16 gospel. This is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light so the practice of sin whatever the sin is a it's like a storm cloud billowing in on itself that means you hate jesus and you love your sin more and more everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not 
come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. People by nature love their sin and hate Christ. The sad and bitter irony is that the LGBTQ plus agenda is the true manifestation of hatred, of Jesus, of his ways, his people, not the other way around. So this last point is under that broader idea of being called homophobic or transphobic or hate speech. But what I want you to see, the, the, the war of words and the, the twisting of ideas is that actually the most beautiful, true, and lovely thing you could ever say to someone is that you need to repent of your sins because God has come down in the flesh, lived, died, and rose in our place, and he will welcome you into his family if you believe. That's true and beautiful. But in their lexicon, their dictionary, that's hate speech. But they're the hate speech because they're hating Jesus. And that's true for any, any there. Anybody, all of us, before Jesus saved us, this is where we all were. Uh, sin is an equal opportunity employer for hatred of Jesus. Everybody hates Jesus in their sins. So what I want to think about now, uh, and then I'll take, we'll take questions after this section, is, yes, homosexuality and its varieties has always existed ever since sin has existed ever since sexual sin has existed in its different varieties. And remember, we've talked about different varieties of se sexual sin last time, and we're zeroing in this time. But what I want us to think about is a history of ideas perspective. Right? All cultures have not been the same. They're different. How do we get to, to this cultural moment? And I'm pulling together from a couple different resources. We're going to go through this quick. We've seen some of this. So step one, step one in the, in the last few centuries, the cataclysmic shift in humanity in the West is the declaration that God is dead. And when you remove the creator from the equation and say there is no creator, then you necessarily have no longer a moral, a universal moral standard. No longer do you have a definition to explain why the world is, what the world is, what's wrong with the world, and what will make it right. So the God is dead idea, when, when you believe that there is no God, or rather, so here's the thing. We think the idea that God is dead is just for atheists who, who don't believe in a God. But false religions are simply religions that make a God in their own image and are essentially worshiping themselves. So even false religions are functionally declaring that God is dead, even though they're, they're hyper-spiritual, because they're not adhering to what God says. So if there's no God, there's no moral accountability. There's no moral absolute. There's no hell. There's no afterlife. There's, there's no eternal consequences. There's no need for salvation. So why not eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die? Do whatever you want. It makes sense if there is no God. But what does the Bible tell us? God is from everlasting to everlasting, creator of all things. All will give an account to him based on his word and his ways. And God commands all people everywhere to repent. That's what the Bible says. But you have people who reject that and say, nope. Now step two, building on the idea that God is dead, if there is no 
overarching creator, there's no moral absolute, there's no, then, then you get into relativism. Step two, how did we get here? If there's no, or there, they say there is no universal truth, all truth is culturally relative, there's no overarching explanation of the world, your truth cannot override my truth, and in fact, with this, the, the current iteration of this postmodern relativism is that truth is simply determined by the majority, which is oppression. And the minority, whatever type of minority it is, in this case, we're talking about so-called sexual minorities, need to overthrow the majority because they need to bring their truth to trump the cultural majority truth. It's postmodern relativism. But the Bible says the triune God and therefore his word is universal and binding truth upon all things, all the time, always. But the step is you go from God is dead to then truth's relative, and it's just a power play, to the next step of getting to where we are today is radical emotional individualism. This is the I am what I feel. It's no longer what Aristotle said, I think, therefore I am. Now it would be, I feel, therefore I am. And this idea is that we, that we are taught to believe that my true and authentic self on the inside must be lived out on the outside. I am myself what is most important to me. So it's, it's narcissism. The most important thing in the world is me. I am myself what is most important to me. And I must live for what I feel is best for me. So, you do you. And if anyone tells you to resist or deny what you feel is to be false, inauthentic, and hurt yourself, it's repressive. That's what's being taught. That's what... People think, the, the, draw, draw a pyramid, the younger we go in generations, the more the generation is just committed to this. It's not even thought about, it's just, yeah, of course that's true. Of course it's true. It's the mantras of our age. It's radical, not just individualism, it's emotional individualism. But what does the Bible tell us? Deny yourself, confess your sins, repent, renounce them, die to yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. And one thing on this idea of emotions, we talked on it before, but it's worth visiting again. Our feelings, our perceptions, our desires deceive us and lie to us. Here's a famous passage. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or sick, depending upon how you translate the Hebrew. Who can understand it? That verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, is the bane of our age, isn't it? Isn't this the exact opposite of what our culture says? My heart's not deceitful. It's not desperately sick or wicked. I understand it. I feel my feels, and I'm going to go live those out. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So again, showing these contrasts, Here's what our current cultural moment says. Here's what the Bible says, but see the steps. God is dead, leads to postmodern relativism, leads to radical emotional individualism, 
And then what's unique about our moment is step four, the final step, anti-authority cultural Marxism. So the idea here is that truth is created and maintained by the cultural hegemony, the majority. And that serves to oppress any and all cultural minorities, sexual, racial, gender, ability, meaning physical or mental, obesity, minorities, and on the list goes. And on this idea, it is morally wrong for anyone to deny or oppose me. Those in authority are inherently oppressors and propagators of systems of oppression. That's the idea. You have, it's not just you're against authority, but now authority is evil. It is what is wrong with this world. There's no such thing as good authority. And so you have this building blocks of God's dead, there's no accountability. Relativism, there's no universal truth. I can do what's right. Then you have this inward turn to individualism that's emotional. I am what I feel. But now it's activated. It's activist. So we spent some time a few months ago reading the proposed curricula for NAU and the four classes that students have to take before they graduate. And the language that summarizes the, the syllabi, basically, is using activist language, right? So it's not so much that you, well, I don't think that's right, or I, I support that. In the activist worldview, if you are not actively protesting against the evil anti-authority oppressors, or the authoritative oppressors, if you are not protesting against that, you are part of the system. You're part of the problem. So it's not just enough to say that, well, I'm, I'm okay with, I'm for same-sex marriage. You actually have to protest for it. Otherwise, if you don't, you are against it. That's what I mean by activist. It's very important that you get that piece. Because the activist is trying, is, it's all attempts to create societal, sociopolitical change where this thing that I'm protesting for needs to be accepted by the majority. And the majority needs to repent of their perspective. So under this step four anti-authority cultural Marxism, they, the cultural majority, must be overthrown. And we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to revisit it too much. But intersectionality, the more intersections of oppression a person has, the more inherent authority they have to speak truth to power. Right? You've, 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 you hear these phrases, right? Speak truth to power. And the idea is intersectionality is the more, right, you're at the four-way stop sign. But the more intersections in that, well, I'll change it to a roundabout you can put in there about oppression. You're female, so then you're oppressed by males. But then if you are not white, then you're further oppressed. But if you're a sexual minority, if you're disabled, uh, if you are obese, just get all of these um, intersections. And the idea is, what's being taught, is that you have authority because you have truth. And the lower on the, the scale that you fall, you actually should be the one in power. And power should not talk to you. Authority should not talk to you. So it's, and this is all the cultural Marxism that wants to overthrow 
anything that is um, in power. And what we've seen is that in the West, Christianity is the is the dominant belief system, not just by religion, but there's they're almost gone, but there's these lingering vestiges of a kind of Christian cultural idea. And that's what's trying to get overthrown. So when we see right now everything that's going on in California, everything's going on around the world, the, the political push, study San Francisco, all that you see going on that's focused on how someone desires other people sexually and how they identify sexually has become the, uh, it's the, it's the moment. That's why, we're, that's why we're addressing it. So we're going to get into what the Bible says, but I just want to pause there for a few moments and ask, oh wait, nope, there's more. There is a five. I snuck into it. Okay. There's activism. Um, silence is violence. I forgot I had it in there. If you're not an activist actively working against the hate and oppression of the cultural majority, then you are part of the hate and oppression. There is no middle ground. What does the Bible say? Isaiah 5, 20, 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, Woe, uh, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. God alone defines right and wrong, truth and error, justice and injustice. So even the phrase that you hear, social justice, is, is a beautiful combination of two terms. Who, who wants to be for social injustice? No Christian should want to be for that. But when you peel back the layers of what that means, social justice is just another way of describing how can those who have all the intersections and oppressions get into a source of power and cultural support. That's not social justice. In other words, if social justice is saying, let's make sin beautiful, that's not justice. It's unjust because it's, it's slavery. So we live in a day and age to be an advocate means that you actually have to call what God calls evil good. But what God calls evil is always evil. Now I'm speaking specifically about LGBTQ+. So there are some things that we could advocate for. We could figure those out. Like sanctity of human life. Um, across womb to tomb. We should care about end of life practices and more but we're, we're being pretty focused here. And think about what Jesus says. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So even a Christian who claims Christ, I'll say as a person who claims Christ, let me say it that way, but works against what Jesus teaches regarding, in this case, sexual immorality, is working against Christ, and therefore either in deep need of discipleship and repentance for wrong thinking, or they're simply an unbeliever or a false convert. So I'm suggesting that these five steps went through really quick, combined to set the stage for the modern cultural moment of the so-called progressive ideologies in America. 
And so LGBTQ plus is viewed as one's identity. I am my sexual urges, attractions, feelings, and desires. The, the age says to say my desires are wrong and sinful is to say that I am at the core of my being and personhood wrong and sinful. It's to say I am sin. To call an LGBTQ person to repentance for sexual sin is oppressive and hateful since it's a call to deny oneself and agree with God. The thing is, again, God in Christ does declare us sinners through and through. We are sinners. Every part of the human person is marred by sin. Every part needs to be redeemed by Christ and made new by Jesus. The gospel itself is offensive in declarations against us and because the darkness hates the light. So when the gospel was being preached to me in college, I didn't like it because it told me that I was wrong and needed to repent of my portfolio of sins and trust Jesus. And that's true for all people and the LGBTQ plus person. Uh, we're going to keep moving just for the sake of time. I know we're going fast. There's a lot of things I want to show you and point, point you to, and we can stay for a long time afterwards and ask questions. We've looked at Romans 1 already, but I want to point out just a few statements to you. So I just gave a cultural perspective. We looked at the history of ideas, essentially, and how ideas join to ideas so that we're in this moment. So Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, begins in the preface by asking this question. I believe that he's um, early 60s, maybe late 50s, and he's, and he's thinking about his grandfather. And he said, if, if you had walked up to his grandfather a uh, gen long generation ago and said, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, he would have laughed, thinking that you were just kind of making an absurd joke. And what Truman is asking in his book is how do we go in a matter of one long generation from um, if you went to then the doctor to say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say, okay, you have a mental problem. We want to help align that with your physiology. Now in a generation, it's, oh, you do have a physical problem and let's change your, your physical body to conform to your, the way that you feel spiritually. And he wants to know how do we get there in a generation and how is it that it's not even questioned? How did, it, how did all the um, uh, psychological associations and all the so-called medical associations just change like that based on what studies and more? Well, Romans 1 gives us the answer. So we've looked at it, but I, what I want you to see is zoom in on verse 25 right in the middle of your page. Let me see if I can find it. Nineteen, what can be known about God is plain to them, all people. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became um, insane, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Twenty-five. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here it is. Look at this. Worshipped and served. 
you, you, you must not let go of those words. Worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what did God do? What did God do when these people said, we don't want God. We know he exists. We're just going to hide from him. And we're not going to worship the creator. We're going to worship bodies, bugs, and beasts. Well, it says in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He releases them into their sin more and more. For their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. Lesbianism. Verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, homosexuality. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought, ought to be done. And now look at the last verse, 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such sins, and by the way, there's just a huge list of sins right here, not just homosexuality, envy. Have you ever driven down the street and seen someone's house and really wanted it? You're in this list. How about a car? How about an Instagram influencer's body? Not just lust, but you wish you looked that way. That's envy. So don't worry, we are all in this list. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, check this out. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you can get enough people around you telling you that your sin isn't sinful, that your sin is beautiful, and that you should engage in it, then you can get a whole group psychosis, a whole group de deception going on. That sin is no longer sinful by human definition, but it doesn't change God's definition. And this is what we see what's going on right now. We have a unique cultural push where not only are people doing all the sins, but they give approval to those who practice them and then implicitly disapprove of people who don't support them, who don't have the celebrate sticker on the car. So that would be the biblical, just there's more text we can look at. It's the biblical summary of, okay, there was the culture of ideas of how we got here across the centuries. And then here's what Paul said 2,000 years ago, and it's been happening the entire time. It's just looked different, manifested differently in different generations. But here is the most um, violent and volatile time in terms of being uh, pro-sin, pro-LGBTQ+. I'm going to pause there and just take a few questions before we get into a really interesting, controversial article. Any questions? Not, no stories. We'll take stories afterwards, but any questions? Olivia, are you debating? A mini question, which means it's a story with a question at the end. Tell, okay, so let's talk about it at the end, okay? okay. I want to go, go through this. I want to show you guys what, you, what we have here. Okay, this next section, 
you'll see a link at the bottom of page 48 to a relatively long academic article. You have a question? Yeah, go, go ahead, here's a, here's a mic coming to you. Hi, um, I'm just more curious about how do we know that this period in time compared to other periods in time is more filled with sin? I mean, if we could point to, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Not that it's more filled with sin, there's the same blow up the balloon of sin. Mm. It's been nicely inflated ever since Genesis 3. But how sin manifests itself is different. So just the unique, every culture has its own unique sins that dominate it. So yeah, there was homosexuality rampant in early Rome. Mm. But it's, it's different now in terms of the um, activist, violent nature, things that we're beginning to see and will increasingly see. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, good question. And if I shut you down saying, well, we'll talk about that afterwards, don't have your feelings hurt, because I, I know where we're gonna go in the notes, yes. Um, so, when talking to people like this who are very um, passionate about their beliefs, how do you, I know like we've already talked about this before, but like how do you approach them, people who are like screaming and yeah. Such a good question. Ask me afterwards. Okay. And we'll, we'll all hang out. We can hang out as long as you want. Because that, that we, have to ask, we have to ask that question. That's a really good question. So I want to lay more, more foundation. Uh, what I had to say was more of a comment. Hold on. Wait. No, no comments. Save it for afterwards. Okay. Unless that's exactly a question. what I want to know. Got it. Um, okay. So this is just like referring to sort of the order of things where you started like with God is dead and then postmodernism. Um, so I guess it seemed like, you, were you saying that postmodernism, like the relativism, that that's sort of where the idea of like oppression started coming in? It, did it start there or is that just under like the cultural Marxism? If, yeah, this isn't clean steps on a ladder. Yeah. But the, the oppression is as old as Marx, he was really one of the first ones to, prime, to really codify that. Yeah. Uh, but his beliefs were built on other beliefs in seed form. Mm -hmm. But we could just give that bad guy the credit. Okay, yeah, and then, so if it was sort of starting then, is it kind of like masked by the like radical individualism? Is, it, is that sort of a tool to like? I think so. Okay. I, I, that, that's my opinion, yeah. Very good question. Genevieve. When you say um, they, he gave them up, is, does that mean there's no chance for them to um, repent or be saved from um, if they think this way, that they're going to always think this way? Thank you for asking that question. So right here, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idol adulterers. So a couple different terms here for sexual sin. Sexual immoral, here's another type of sexual sin, adultery. And then here's two words in the Greek for both the active and passive acts of 
homosexual sex. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul's talking to the church, and then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So the answer to your question is no. Um, the only sin that keeps us from being saved is unbelief. Okay. And so, so what do we do? Do we still pray for these people? We never stop praying. We, we never stop praying for, because this, this, this is a uniquely sensitive topic because um, I think Bo asked at the men's retreat, I think it was you that asked that, how many of you, Jeff did, in your household or in your family have somebody who identifies some type of LGBTQ plus and half the rooms went up? I mean, a, a lot of arms went up. And when you look at statistics, if they can be believed, of the cultural pyramid from older to younger, the younger you go down in the, in the generations, now Gen Z, I saw a figure, I have no idea if it's true. It's upwards of like 23% identify as non-binary or LGBTQ+. Whereas all generations previous, it was maybe half a percent or 1%. So something culturally is taking place where children, young people are being coerced into ideology. Um, so we never stop praying, Genevieve. Okay. Yeah. I, I personally don't know what to do around them. I said to someone, do we just love them even though we don't accept them? Yeah, when we start getting into all different kinds of specifics, we'll have to talk about those afterwards. What about a coworker? Good question. What's your job? Okay. What about a family member? Okay, that's a different story. Families don't exercise church discipline. Churches do. But you have to be wise and there's boundaries and, and on that goes. So let's let's talk about that afterwards. Let's keep let's keep moving forward. Randy, okay. Do you think hedonism has basically uh, brought about this type of culture? And I think hedonism is also uh, basically even led a lot of the church down that road as well. Just seeking pleasure, fun, TV, movie, sports all seeking pleasure kind of leads into this cultural type of view. 100%. Uh, one example would be, uh, you know, binging on Netflix shows. But if you, well, I mean this specifically, if you can, um, the older you are, the, the longer your eyes are to be able to see this. But look at the top 10 TV shows each decade going back and back and back. And you're going to see um, what was taboo, then pushing the boundaries, and then the introduction of, uh, so Modern Family. I know Will and Grace was beforehand, but Modern Family was very popular, won all the awards, and there's a gay couple. And you watch the show, and you like these guys. They're your friends. They're funny. The show's enjoyable to watch. And you watch all 10 seasons, or however many it was, and, and it, what it does is it that hedonism, I, this is my entertain, my sin, or their sin is my entertainment, but I don't realize it, opens the door of my heart, lets it in, and I'm just satisfying my pleasures by watching a show and vegging out, and then it desensitizes and more. Yeah, very good. Okay. This long article, there's the link. 
I, I, um, I'm going to assume that not all of you are going to go read the whole thing, and you don't need to. I just cut out, I cut and pasted quite a few quotes from this article. It's from, he wrote it in 99, he published it in 2000. Okay, so, so 23 years ago. And it's an academic look. The title is called Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal by Peter Jones. And I'm just going to read a few quotes along the way. What he does in this article is he gathers together the research from researchers that study other religions, religions across time and religions across space. So not just in Mesopotamia, not just in India, and he studies the Navajo, actually, in this, which is in the Zuni. Uh, it's remarkable. And one thing that comes out, and he's using non-Christian data, and he's collating it, and he's interpreting it. And so here I'll read, this is the bottom of 48, I'm going to read A here. In this article from 2000, Peter Jones explores the religious, religious roots of homosexuality via Romans 1 as played out across history in various religions. Throughout time and across space, the pagan cultists, so basically non-Christian religions, consistently though not exclusively, holds out as its sexual representative the emasculated, sexless, so androgynous, sexless, neither male nor female, or both, priest. Uh, Mircea Eliad, I don't know how to say that, a respected expert in comparative religion argues that androgyny as a religious universal or archetype appears virtually everywhere and at all times in the world's religions. Much evidence exists to support this judgment. And so then his article goes to explain, okay, here's what the, the Mesopotamians and the, uh, the, the Sumerians, and then here's the Bible religions, the, the, um, the um, Canaanite religions, and more, and what you see across these, and then not just, again, time, but space, that the, the, the priest or the priestess would engage in homosexual acts and or cross-dress and or adopt their opposite gender. So the woman or the man would adopt the um, affect, the speech, the act, the, 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 the way of carrying themselves. So a woman would act like a man or a man would act like a woman in that particular culture and more. And it's fascinating. This article just goes through. Go down to F. So now he's beginning to think about today. Though promoted as an issue of civil rights, the homosexual slash androgynous revival is not merely contemporary civics or chic theory. The close connection between pagan esoteric spirituality and androgynous sexuality is evident across time and space demands that we not ignore the spiritual dimensions underlying the contemporary scene. Pause there. Just think about what Romans 1 said. God gave them up to the lust of their flesh and we saw the, the homosexuality being a sin highlighted in that text. 
Barbara Marks Hubbard's Spirit Guide says that sexual identity confusion is a good thing in the new age. Quote, she says, your adolescence will be a joy, you will be androgynous. In the light of the above evidence, all the different religions he talks about and he quotes, is not surprising, uh, it uh, should not be surprising to note that the revival of pagan religion in our day is accompanied by a powerful reappearance of pagan sexuality. In other words, homosexuality may be less a modern question of biological destiny or civil rights than a necessary practical outworking of age-old pagan spirituality. It's becoming more and more manifest that a particular religious commitment is always accompanied by a particular sexual theory and practice. So for the Christian, it's sexuality expressed in biblical marriage with one biological man and one biological woman. So then it makes sense, is what he's arguing, is that in non-Christian religions would overthrow those um, ideals. So not the so-called um, Abrahamic religions. So I was thinking of Islam or something along those lines that have seeds in the Old Testament, but these would be non-biblically associated religions, they're going to have a sexual ethic that's contrary to biblical sexual ethic. So you think about, again, Romans and Athenians and the sex cults and more. I got to go to Ephesus a couple years ago, and you should just see the uh, pornographic statues in all the museums that were the idols of their, guard, their, their, their gods. Uh, it's just it's crazy. But this is not to suggest some scarlet conspiratorial thread connecting the dots like that. Remember, now, today, nowadays, conspiracy theories are spoiler alerts. The connection is logical, theological, and inevitable. A monistic, so we've seen this word before, monism, Weird word means, think one-ism versus two-ism. Um, two-ism is the creator-creature distinction. One-ism is that in some way the universe and the rocks and the trees and the rivers and the people, we all sort of, it's like pantheism type, all somehow are God, related to God, are the gods. And so any view that does not honor the creator-creature distinction, a monistic view of existence will work itself out in all the domains of human life, especially the domain of sexuality. How many of you um, took a psychology class at some point in school? How many of you um, read Carl Jung or heard of Carl Jung? Okay, when you get a chance... Um, this is the part of Carl Jung. This is stuff that you didn't learn in school, but these are his writings. Uh, he channeled spirits, um, and he was under a spirit by the name of Philemon and wrote a bunch of stuff. You should read what he wrote. It's interesting. And it's wrong, just so you know. That's, that's where I want you to see. Uh, I want to just close on, not close this, this part. Go to page 52. Super long quote. I just copy and pasted like the last three paragraphs. You're welcome. 
I know it's like finals week for some of you, so when you're procrastinating, you can read this instead. This is how he ends. So he surveys all his religions, space and time, and you always see this sexual ideal, basically LGBTQ+. He says, as in ancient Gnosticism, remember Gnosticism said the material flesh was evil, spirit was good, spirit needs to be released from the physical. As in ancient Gnosticism, the patriarchal God of Scripture is eliminated from respectable cutting-edge theology and even from polite campus speech. This is in the year 2000. In some evangelical schools, all in the name of Christ. Such a trade-off prevents many well-meaning Christians from seeing the essential goal. Where is my cursor? Can I see this? From seeing the essential goal of the sexual revolution as the subtle destruction of a theistic worldview. So that begins back to, the, I mean, especially the late 60s, right? We say the, the sexual revolution, late 60s, late 70s in particular. In the place of sexual differentiation, we are offered monistic, egalitarian androgyny as a physical, social, spiritual ideal. One with the universe, the universe told me, egalitarian, there's no authority, androgyny, neither male nor female, physical, socially, spiritually. Thus many espousing gender liberation in the name of Christ and the gospel only too late discover a culture liberated from the God who in Christ both created and redeemed the world. What is often not seen in the debate on sexuality is that we are also in the presence of two gospels. One gospel is pagan. It preaches redemption as liberation from the creator and repudiation of creation structures, uh, biblical marriage, binary. The other gospel, the Christian proclaims redemption as reconciliation with the creator and the proclamation of the creation's goodness. In a pagan world, a truncated gospel of personal salvation will no longer do. Sexuality within the context of creation must be announced as an essential part of the Christian message of reconciliation with God and glad submission to his goodwill. It is a very interesting article. Forging on ahead, write those questions down. Don't forget them, we'll talk. This might be a question that comes up. How about desires? Is homosexual orientation sinful? This is an important question within evangelical circles. The answer is yes, it is. It is a sinful desire. Same-sex attraction is a sinful desire and must be put off as with all sinful desires. You have to put off sinful anger. You have to put off coveting. We have to put off lying. We have to put off lust. Well, this is a type of lust. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus roots sin in our hearts, not just our actions. Our heart is the root. What we do or say is the fruit. So what we do or say is coming out of our heart. So to be sinfully angry towards another person is to commit murder in your heart, even if you don't actually kill them. So to sexually desire a person, implicitly including same sex, who is not one's spouse, 
is sin. And we've already looked at marriage. There's the Bible disallows same-sex marriage. So the Bible counsels those with same-sex desires and what any person's, this is just whatever your sins are, we have to put them off, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Our desires feel good and right, yet they can deceive us. That's what Ephesians 4.22 just told us. This is also true for LGBTQ desires. Two quotes from Denny Burke, linked to this article, is in the notes. These truths ought to inform how brothers and sisters in Christ wage war against same-sex attraction. Sin is not merely what we do, it's also who we are. And so many of our confessions have it, we are sinners by nature and choice. All of us are born with an orientation towards sin in all varieties. The ongoing experience of same-sex sexual attraction is but one manifestation of our common experience of indwelling sin, indeed of the mind set on the flesh. For this reason, the Bible teaches us to war against both the root and fruit of sin. In this case, same-sex attraction is the root and same-sex behavior is the fruit. The Spirit of God aims to transform both. This is not to say that Christians who experience same-sex attraction will necessarily be freed from those desires completely in this life. Many such Christians report partial or complete changes in their attractions after conversion, sometimes all at once, more often over a period of months and years. But those cases are not the norm. There are a great many who also report ongoing struggles with the same-sex attraction. But that does not lessen the responsibility for them to fight those desires as long as they persist, no matter how natural those desires may feel. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit can bring about this kind of transformation in anyone, even if such progress is not experienced by everyone in precisely the same measure. As the Apostle Paul writes, Thanks be to God that, through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And there's the link at the bottom. I have, um, I have friends who came out of sexual li- uh, homosexual lifestyles. I have a good pastor friend who is happily married and has three children and struggles with same-sex attraction. And it's an ongoing sin that he has to, the old word is mortify, to, to put to death. But he loves his wife. He's a faithful father. He's a good pastor. So kind of to Genevieve's question a little bit earlier, um, and like what Denny Burke says here, is yes, that's a sinful desire, just as sinful anger is a sinful desire that needs to be put off. And we have to be clear on that because there's a debate in, within Christianity whether it's a sin or not. And that's actually what this next, this next point is. So... Is it appropriate then to speak of gay Christians? Let me ask this question. Does, and just, you don't need to say this out loud rhetorically, but I do want you to answer it in your mind. In reading the Bible and in reading the New Testament, are there, does the Bible ever instruct us to add a modifier to the word Christian? 
yet. I heard your heart, Olivia. It was right. The answer is no. There's no modifier to Christian. So I got into an an argument with a friend uh, who was straight but had a tremendous amount of sexual sin in his life, alcohol abuse, and drug abuse in his life. And the programs that, we, we, that he went through uh, taught him to say that he is a uh, sexual-aholic Christian, alcoholic Christian, and drug addict Christian. And I said, read Ephesians. You are not defined by your sin. You're defined by Jesus. You are a Christian, period. You're a new man. You have sins that you've got to fight against. Let's figure out a way to fight against those together. But there's no modifier to the word Christian. But right now, the debate is should there, is there such a thing as called gay Christians? So to the point that we just looked at, it is a, it's a sinful desire. We don't, we don't define by our sins or even anything else. Once we're born again, our identity is in Christ as Jesus' new creation, new humanity. We put off the old man, put on Christ. There is no modifier to Christian. We do not self-define by our sin struggles which Jesus forgave and defeated on his cross and empty tomb. Why am I bringing this up? Because of the Revoice Conference. So there's links below. You can listen to some talks uh, if you want to. They're very helpful. The Revoice Conference, which is hosted in Colorado. I don't know where Colorado is. And the conference, at least in its early stages, to be fair, it's gone through iterations, These are lame names. There's Side A Christianity and Side B Christianity. Have any of you heard of Side A and Side B Christianity? Just curious. No. Okay. All right. Me and Bo. Okay, so Side A Christianity teaches that God approves of same-sex marriage and that homosexuality is one of many diverse forms of sexual expression the church should welcome. This position welcomes, admits, and celebrates all LGBTQ+. This position is, now here's my commentary, is biblically false and cannot knowingly be endorsed or embraced by any Christian. This is a non-Christian position. Now, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that the Revoice Conference has now... um, Uh, broken with side A Christianity. And so now they talk about side B Christianity. This teaches that homosexuality is a result of the fall, okay? But it's not a moral responsibility since it's a desire or orientation that a person did not choose. Just play the logic out on that on... uh, other types of lust or anger or coveting or just, just go through the sins. It, it just doesn't work. But inside B Christianity, homosexual practice is a sin, okay? Yet sexual orientation is an accurate category of personhood. So they're going to say the modifier, I am an LGBTQ plus Christian, is true and accurate of what it means to be a Christian in their teaching. And it's a matter of personal preference whether or not you use it or not. So you may let people know or not know. Thus, the desire 
an orientation is not a sin one is culpable for and need not necessarily be repented of. You just shouldn't act on it. So I have this desire, but it's not wrong because I, I have it. I don't know whether I chose it. I don't know whether I was born with it, but here's this desire. And yes, it's part of the fall, but so are other deformities. I don't think they would say it that way, but I don't need to repent of it. So the Revoice Conference in 2018 supports and promotes Side B Christianity. They're going to say, yes, there's, there's gay Christians, and that's true and right. In his book, Spiritual Friendship by Wesley Hill, there is much to commend on recovering a true biblical perspective on friendship between Christians. That's what you think the book is about, spiritual friendship. However, this notion is adopted by side B Christians as a means for LGBTQ plus individuals to have all the trappings of marriage, yet without any sexual expression under the guise of spiritual friendship. The framework is that SSA, same-sex attraction, is not a desire orientation to be repented of per se, just a desire not to be acted upon. So two LGBTQ plus people can accept their sexual orientation, enter into spiritual friendship, but not sexually act upon it. But the notion of two people who romant this is my commentary, the notion of two people who romantically and sexually desire one another moves beyond the biblical definition of friendship, since those are God-given cues for marriage. And just as this type of relationship would be adulterous between a man and a woman outside of the context of marriage, right, cohabitation, so too side B spiritual friendships. This is not to mention that the LGBTQ plus desire orientation is sinful and should be put off. Scripture says to flee sexual immorality, to make no provision for the flesh, and to make no appearance of evil. And then take this to its logical conclusion. What's the hypothetical Christological implication? It's a fancy way of saying, if that's true, what might that say about Jesus? It's not true, but let's... Let's assume, for argument's sake, that it's true. Then hypothetically, on this position, it's possible, given that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, it could be wrongly conceived that Jesus could have struggled with homosexual desires since those desires are a product of the fall and not culpable of sin. So if you allow that type of false teaching, it, it impacts your Christology, your understanding of who Jesus is, and it redefines sin and more. There is, I copy and pasted this entire article because it is outstanding. You look at the date, it just came out a month ago on April 3rd, Rosaria Butterfield, why I no longer use transgender pronouns and why you shouldn't either and so she's seeking to bind our conscience here and she does an outstanding job this is the best short piece i have seen that is calling christians to not use they them there or any of the other uh, nonsense and she explains why coherently beautifully i would encourage you um, to read the whole thing it's not too long 
I just want to close with this. And we can circle back and talk about these things if you want. It's just a reminder. Uh, bottom of 59, sex and the gospel. We already looked at this. Here's, what we, here's, here's the deal. We talked about it many times. Around sexual sin, all of us have sexual sin in our past. And all of us, most of us, many of us may have sexual sin in our present. But certainly, um, scars, traumas, whatever the deal is, that we all, we, every single person, no one's exempt from this. And so when you talk about sex and sexuality, and you talk about the gospel, you talk about desires and more, there's so much shame, there's so much hiding around this topic. And the thing is, what Jesus does in his gospel is he rescues us even from those sins against us and sexual sins that we have committed. That this, this, beautiful, this beautiful text, again, 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, that long list of sins, many of which were sexual, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we come to Jesus, Jesus washes us white, right? The picture of sin in the Bible is defilement and dirty and stains. So the stain of Jesus' blood stains over the stains of our sins. That's the picture. He washes us white. And he gives us white garments as a symbol of both cleansing and righteousness. So that means that a, the bride can wear white as a sign of purity on her wedding day, despite maybe what her past was. Something similar can be said for the guy. All our sins, including sexual sin, is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, 12. Right? Get in that airplane and start flying west. At what point do you ever start heading east? Never. You're just going around the circle. You're always going west. Turn around and you go in the opposite direction. God wants us to understand that those sins committed against us and the sins that we commit, especially sexual sins, he is removed. So uh, he cast, the Bible talks about how he's thrown them into the depths of the sea, cast them behind his back, trampled them underfoot, and removed them as far as the east is from the west. That's what the gospel does. And so there are future saved people right now in an LGBTQ lifestyle just because that's the topic for this evening. And that woman, Rosaria Butterfield, was an early activist, prominent lesbian, tenured academic, who was loved by a Presbyterian couple. They showed her hospitality. He was a pastor in the church. And she was interviewing them because she wanted to understand conservative Christians, and Jesus saved her. And she repented of all her sins, including her lesbianism, and got married, had kids, and is a brilliant woman, and an excellently, she's an outstanding author. She turns a phrase very well. And so there's people at NAU, and people in our families, and people at Macy's, and people in our jobs, who the Lord's going to save. Maybe through you, 
maybe through somebody else, and they're going to be washed white. And whether someone's an adulterer or a homosexual or a thief, drunkard, whatever the deal is, that's enslavement to sin. And so what our task is to be armed with the gospel of grace and to say, you know what, I may not have the sin that you're struggling with, but, but I have the common humanity of knowing what it's like to be enslaved to sin. And I want you to know that what you're trying to find in those things can only be found in Christ. You're not going to find it in another guy. You're not going to find it in another girl. You're not going to find it in a work. You're not going to find it in the bottle, the bed, wherever it is. You're going to find it in Jesus only. Let me tell you about him. All right, that's, that's, that's what the gospel does. That's why, the gospel's, that's why Jesus is so glorious. And so what the gospel does is it removes shame. It restores sanctity, dignity, freedom to a better than pre-fall garden. In Christ, we're no longer ashamed. That's really important. So many Christians, we all have our own shames and regrets. And that's where we have to take them to the cross over and over again. The power of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit frees us from enslavement to sin. We can fall back into it if we don't have our guard up, whatever it is. But the Spirit can change our desires and allow us to master them. And so for some people who struggle with same-sex desire, it may be that it's just a lifelong struggle that is so uh, dominating that not, they, they desire not to marry. And that's okay. That's 1 Corinthians 7. They live a life devoted to Jesus and serving him in unique ways that married couples can't and more. And so ours is to make sure that we don't make some sins the unpardonable sin, but rather instead be prepared to have transgender people come into these doors and preach the truth of Christ and call them to repentance and remind them of the same gospel they need, we need every day for our own sanctification. Um, so the end. L let, me, let me pray, close us, and then I'll be here until youth group's done. Lord, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. Lord, we recognize that we live in confusing tumultuous times, tectonic upheavals, sexuality, race, gender, finances, through and through. Presidential election is coming up, and the parties are now divided based on anthropology more than economics. God, we, we pray for your grace that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom would triumph in and through this land and this world. Jesus, we want you to come back tonight. But if you don't, we want to be faithful to you to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that you said, Lord. So we, I pray, Lord, that the stuff that we've looked at this evening, that you would benefit our souls by understanding your mind and your purposes, to have a better diagnostic for... Um, friends and family outside these walls, and to be prepared to speak the gospel to them. So Lord, we, we love you, and we belong to you, and we thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Isaac, are you sticking around for a little bit? Yeah. Can you run the mic for us? Sure. Oh, Olivia has two? That's dangerous. Yeah, was that okay? Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's continue it. Thank you, Chris. Feel free to get up and sneak out if you need to. 
but go ahead, Livia. Do you want to take a minute to think about what you want to say? I wasn't ready, yeah. Okay, any, any questions over everything since I just it was like going 100 miles an hour through all that? Yeah, Katie. Okay, so in general, this whole topic, when would you say is like a good age range to be teaching our kids about this? Because I feel like our generation has to be a little bit more deliberate in teaching our kids like the Marxist views and things that I my parents didn't have to do with me. So do you have like, I don't know. Because I do think, like, in public schools, this is introduced way too young. There's an age where they don't need to know this stuff. But what's, like, a good it's, range? Yeah, it's tricky, right? So um, so this question is a, is a matter of wisdom and conscience. So, for example, a parent is going to know their kids best, what they can handle, right? When do you have the sex talk? But one of the things is recognizing that if, you're, if you have your kid in daycare, they're not even in preschool yet, just daycare, preschool, they're just going to be in the, the public school system, which I, which I would, well, yeah, that really needs to be thought through in this day and age. I challenge that now. My position's changed on that. But a, 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 a family's going to have to think very carefully um, that they're going to have to talk sooner with their children about those things because their children are going to be introduced to them without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. And so a parent has to be hyper, hyper vigilant, basically. Mm-hmm. What are you reading? What are you talking about? So in that case, um, I can't remember who I was talking to. There's one mom. She was, uh, the dad was at work, so he couldn't do it, but he, as much as he could, she volunteered a ton. She, in, in, um, she, was, she was a teacher's aide, she was in the class, she was listening to the teaching, she was loving the kids, she was helping out, doing all the different things. And when other parents couldn't come in to help out, the teacher knew that she could always depend upon her. So she was there, she was in the, on the PTA, so she was involved, but that, that's, a, that's a full-time job. So you have to be in a pretty unique life situation to be able to pull that off. So it, then you also have, like, is your kid in sports? Um, is your... Uh, just even, you know, with, with Flagstaff Christian School growing so much with many unbelieving families joining the school, so that, that's a whole new layer of complexity they have to deal with in the classrooms, a lot of things that the teachers need to think through. So I'm going to say it's going to be earlier than we want. And we have to be hypervigilant about our kids here and have constant conversations. Listen, you know when your kid uses a new word or a new phrase or acts differently, and you have to just listen to that and begin to ask questions. So I don't know when, but it's much sooner that we're going to be comfortable with. So it's, it's a topic in our, in our household. And so the older kids know it, so the younger kids are hearing what they don't understand, and I'm fine with them not understanding, but when they begin to pick up, we've got to start defining terms. Yeah. John. Okay, yeah, go for it, dude. Uh, is it working? Yeah. Okay. Um, to kind of go on what she said, um, you know, public school was like the downfall of me and other kids that I've seen growing up. And it's because of the, the children that they're being surrounded by. So if a Christian school is being flooded by unbeliever, unbelievers and children who are not growing up in a Christian household, um, the, the intrinsic value of that school is going to go way down. 
Um, so just think about that homeschool. I really, really recommend that because it's the only way you can really protect your child from other people who are going to corrupt and warp your child's brain. Um, something that uh, Chad said about sin being more prominent in today, you know, if you look back on a lot of things um, like homosexuality, obviously, obviously that's been here for a long time, like Sodom and Gomorrah. You look back at transgenderism, you know, you can, the Egyptians did that. There's evidence to show that. There's, um, you know, Satanist, the oldest, one of the oldest uh, religions. Um, uh, after Jesus, there was a, the rise of the Baphomet um, cult, um, which, and another thing is uh, the biggest thing right now is the mutilation of children. And that's not new. We've actually been, humans have been mutilating children for years, way longer than just, you know, 100 years from now. Uh, so it's just the push of, because of technology, it's being able to be pushed at a lot, accelerated rate. Um, that's correct. Yeah. Did you have a question in there? I did. But I feel like I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of different comments on several different things at this point. Um, so I'll, I'll take a break and hand this over to anyone else. Yeah, so uh, my question was, um, do you think there's a danger in introducing your child to, I mean, the sex talk? Like, you, you were saying, like, too early or, like, just wait for the signs, like, of when to tell. Is there, like, a danger of, like, being too early or, like, not actually too early, just is there like a too early stage or does it really matter? Because I, personally, I, I feel like it should be as soon as possible as, as long as they understand it, but I don't know. Yeah, that, that's where the, it, um, by saying earlier than we want means that when the time is appropriate for a child to have that information, our day and age is going to push that sooner than may be appropriate for our child, if that makes sense. So what that means then is like every kid is different. And so a parent needs to know how to parent that particular child and when to have that conversation. Typically what happens is the conversation is too late and so they're exposed to porn or they're exposed to everything else. So the idea is that, that that's not the goal. But now it's the reverse where it's like where your kid may, they don't, they've got a year or two before they need to have the conversation. They actually have to have it sooner. So you actually have to expose them um, more than it's age appropriate. Good question. What else? Brandon, do you got something? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, so I have a bunch of questions, but I will... Okay, um, but I will try yeah, you to... Gotta, if like, you hold the mic to your chin, that's the speaker trick, right? Like oh, right yes. there like that. That'll work. Just don't put your lips on it because it gets weird. That's, <laughs> that's kind of nasty, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> let's see. Um, so you talked about the idea of monism and um, sort of the rejection of distinction, which is very tied up in like pantheism in Eastern religions. So is that very tied, do you think, in um, sort of like the rise of like New Age spirituality and culture? And do you think that transgenderism like flows specifically from that or is it sort of an indirect correlation? I think it flows specifically from it. And so this guy who wrote that article, Peter Jones is his name, has a number of books and things like that where this is this is kind of his focus on ministry but I think what's so fascinating about his point is that if you're going to reject the biblical view on sexuality 
you don't just get rid of sexuality, you have to replace it with something else. And if you're going to get rid of the creature-creator distinction, you're going to go the opposite direction. Well, if there's no distinction, then that's the monism or the oneism. So that's where uh, then, again, the rise of... Um, so the th here's the thing with heresies. They just get recycled with different names. And so technology, we're, we're like techno-heretics because we're able to use technology to... Uh, visually change the structure of a person's body but not at the cellular level and so even with the idea of Gnosticism okay that's an old fancy word and yet that's just saying that this what I feel on the inside is more important than the outside and I need to conform the outside to my inside that's Gnosticism that's 2,000 years old and it's just that's what is happening with the transgender movement in particular right now Good question. Can I have another question? Okay, yeah, go for one okay. more. Go one more and then we'll pass it around. Okay. Um, and so just for the idea, more, this is more for like in having conversations with people, um, the sort of the idea that it's like contrary to nature. How would you respond when people like do bring up those religions that are thousands of years old, that that was part of their practice, and they'll say, well, this is this isn't contrary to their nature. It's this Western idea. Like how would you combat that? Yeah, the... So I don't like saying Judeo-Christian, but that the Christian sexual ethic began in Genesis 1 and has been going ever since. So it's technically neither white nor Western. Um, so I would actually, I would start there. Yeah. A and, um, and then appealing to other religions. Here's what's interesting, is you can peer further into how previous eras of humanity both space and time, interacted with um, non-binary people. And they didn't use that language. And the priests or priestesses were celebrated. But in a societal level, they were usually ostracized in some way. Overtly, covertly, or they kind of knew and they're treated differently. So I would just appeal that... Um, Societies around the world have always known that um, LGBTQ plus was abnormal. So just because it was utilized, the reason it was utilized in the pagan religions is because they thought that that person was closer to the gods and the spirits because they were not either male or female, but they were one. They were both in the same. So they, they see it as like transcending nature in a sense? Exactly. Thing? Okay. Yeah overcoming the limitations of creation or, or of nature because within themselves they are both or they participate in both yeah um i'm curious about as we hear a lot about like uh, humanity's doing this humanity's doing that how much of this um if i may ask is demonic is well yeah demonic demons how much are they pushing this, would you say, or is that, would that be? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I think that I, uh, no one's able to quantify that, right? So it kind of, one error is to say, the devil made me do it, I'm not responsible. Uh, he can make us do something, or make someone do something, and that person's responsible, but the devil's responsible too. So that would be one mistake, is to blame everything on the devil. The other mistake is to not, to discount him entirely, right? So read the book, read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. You can 
YouTube it and just listen to someone read it to you in a cool British accent. <laughs> so like, either of those would be, the, so absolutely. So um, we know that Paul tells us all, any religions that's not Christian religion is inspired by demons. So New Age spirituality and more, like one, one comment I forgot to t tell you guys, so thanks for asking. So what, what do you do with the knowledge? What's the so what of knowing that these different religions, pagan religions all had various types of uh, androgyny is the word. And, and what we saw Romans teach us is that it's a worship issue, right? They worship and, they, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, it's a worship issue. So my thought, my, my opinion is that what we're seeing with the rise of activism is uh, um, states, the government, politics always turns into God. It always wants to become, it wants to become God over the people. And what we, and what's happening politically is that we're seeing that in politics it's, it's good and right to protect, protect and promote LGBTQ+. So there's this political shield in some segments of politics. And so in that sense, LGBTQ+, is becoming a state religion. Because when you have a battle between Christianity and LGBTQ+, and the Bible tells us it's Romans 1, which state religion is going to win? Right? And it's the LGBTQ+, one that's currently... Uh, in some ways, winning the day and more. So all that to say, yes, somehow, somewhere, through and through, it's demonic. So Ephesians 6 is in our Bible. Arm ourselves with Jesus. Arm ourselves with the gospel and, and go for it. Go for it means speaking the gospel to people. I'll be, I'll be quick. This is super out of date because it was like 20 minutes ago and it was off topic then. So but <laughs> old school, out of date, 20 minutes ago. Thank you. <laughs> For the conversation, regarding the, the public school being the hive of scum that it is, um, I survived it, and I am a Christian, and I still am a Christian, and like, this is dark, like I knew kids who died in high school, and so their only exposure to the gospel was the Christians who were in high school with them. So just the flip side of that, that's all. <laughs> Yeah, and that becomes an important question as to what degree do we use our kids as missionaries. And that's, a, that's an important ethical question uh, because, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. And so if you have a, uh, a kid growing up in a Christian home that we're not sure if they're saved or not, I went to public school. I even did three years of community college, all right? So, I mean, you're talking to, like, top shelf right here. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, so it's going to depend upon the, the child and more. It's just a lot. That's why I said a lot of wisdom has to go into it. But culture is changing fast and coercion is something that exists in the last three years that didn't exist before to the fervor that it's at. So it's just, it's a good wisdom issue. Next. Yeah. Uh, just quickly comment, commenting on that too. We're called to be a part of the world and be like a representative and I think one of the biggest problems that some individuals have I think myself included is realizing some of the evil of the world and still being firm in our beliefs like sometimes we're taught to have these blinders on and be not recognize the sin that can attack us but at the same time also 
just recognizing the sin itself and being a witness to that? We, uh, we should not be monks on the mm. one hand and retreat from the world, right? The problem with monasticism was they all retreated into monasteries and brought their sin into the monasteries. So that's the same thing with homeschooling. Just because a family homeschools their kids, my kids' greatest problem is not outside of them, it's inside of them. It's their mm. sin against Jesus. So they need to repent of that and, and be saved. Um, but then the other side is how, when Jesus says be in the world but not of it, that's just that's a that's a narrow road to walk, mm -hmm. and it's and, I, and we spend a lifetime figuring that out. Yeah, uh, but qu my question is a short one. It's um, I find it interesting and just want to get your take on it. Is I feel like the LGBTQ community is doing what Christianity sh at the core of it is, which is being a loving, welcoming place. But there's these undertones of coercion that you talk about. I think publicly they do better at what our morals should be, and that is caring for the individual, at least on a public, like social media, those type of things. Because often I see vilified individuals who are conservative, and you could get into whether they are truly Christian or not, but... Do you think that's the main problem that we're facing right now as a Christian community? I, I don't think it's the main problem, and I partially agree with your observation in this way. Anecdotally, I remember hearing a story of a hardcore East L.A. gangbanger mm -hmm. who got saved and f just loved Jesus, loved his Bible, so he came into the church, and the... Um, yeah, he was uh, jumped into the gang, but then that brotherhood or that they, he experienced on a worldly plane was way more brotherly than what he was experiencing in his church. Mm -hmm. And so um, now, whether or not he was truly a convert, I don't know, but I think that he ended up leaving the church. It was a mega church too, mm -hmm. so it was hard to get involved. I think that wherever there's going to be people, Christian or not, there's going to be sin. And... Um, that on the outside, it might look like they do better. Um, but I would say that if you lift the hood of that car, it's actually not what it looks like on the outside. Mm. Um, and so what ends up happening is that's the quiet majority, or even in the church, like once you marry a local church, become a member, and you get involved, it takes time to build any relationship. And then you can find out that actually the church, a good, healthy church, is there is no rival to it mm -hmm. in terms of those relationships. But on the outside, it could seem attractive to someone on social media saying that they're like they're just they're at home alone and they see these people are standing for something, they're fighting for something. I want to be a part of that. It's just it's a lie. Yeah, because what I think is at the core of Christianity and churches, we do a better job. I just think the image that's portrayed to the world is not, maybe we're not stepping outside as much as we should and portraying the image that we should. Yeah. So it actually takes the whole church to preach the whole gospel. And that's true because what the world doesn't see is what takes place, not just in here, because the church is the people, not the building. Mm -hmm. This is just where we assemble. But it's, it's our shared lives together as a church family and those relationships. And it's all of those things that that's, 
there's, there's no, nothing else can rival Jesus's institution of the local body. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a good point. Okay, so. And then it was Ziff. Um, okay, for the whole like kid thing and bringing up kids now. Yes, we are cool Christians now and survive public school just fine. <laughs> but the world is like so changing so quickly. Like by the time our generation has kids, like who knows what even more they'll be teaching in schools. And it's like so disheartening because like public school is such a like fond memory for me. But like I, I thought I went into public school thinking everyone else went to church. And wait, you you went what? I went into public school, like kindergarten, thinking everyone else also went to church. Uh-huh. And so I did my little presentation on like my favorite holiday is Easter. Shared the gospel. <laughs> Just because I thought that's how anyways, not the point. Um thanks. Um so yeah, I don't know. I think we just all have to be like super careful, especially now that the world is changing and like children's books now are like pushing the agenda of LGBTQ and pushing the agenda of, oh, you you if you feel different, like this is why. Not because I don't know, someone made fun of you on the playground. I don't know. Not even just that. It's like when you how do you when you let your kid be exposed to social media? TikTok, yeah, exactly. Instagram. No. Yeah. My kid's not getting a phone until they graduate high school. You're just at like this an old point. Fuddy-duddy. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't care. No TikTok. No, no nothing. <laughs> so Livy, good observations. Do you have a question? I have a okay, so that was my only comment on that one. My okay. question is from the actual like thing today. Um, I have seen online that LGBTQ, transgender, whatever have actually been studied and researched and they are just high functioning autism, like autistic people. Have you heard or read anything about that? I know nothing about that. Okay, because, okay, so she's also heard about that because their research on like their brains, they're like, oh, these are just like high functioning autistic people that can like have their own opinion. And once they were told at a young age, oh, if you feel like you should be in a boy's body, they like hyper fixate on that idea and like they run with it their whole lives and that's how their like brains work. I mean, it sounds plausible. Now, is that 100% of people? I is that 100%? Would, I, would I doubt don't know, that. But, but yeah. I doubt it too, but I was just wondering if you'd heard anything on that. No, I haven't, but that's interesting. Okay. That's good. Cool. What, that's what else? That was, for now, that's it. Okay. <laughs> I had a question. Um, so I guess basically like has this become such a big thing recently or has it been going on like for a long time? Because I n- noticed it and like it became a big deal in my life when I like three years ago, like 2020 basically. But that's like also when I like became a high schooler. So I don't know if that was it. Like has this become such a big thing in the last three, four or five years or has it been going on for 20 plus or anything like that? So different people will give different answers to that, but a common meeting ground is 2014 when the Supreme Court passed Obergefell and legalized same-sex marriage at a federal level. And almost like overnight, like the next day is when 
Coca-Cola and Disney and all the companies suddenly came out as pro and for LGBTQ+. Now, for decades prior to that, protests and different things taking place, San Francisco and different, um, different things like that, but that, that will usually get point, pointed to a cultural moment when not only you had the convergence of that, that uh, Supreme Court decision and it was, and it was, I, I forget what the vote was, but it was, it was, um, it was not by a huge margin. It was, it was in favor of by one vote. And when that took place, you also had all of the companies around that same time. And this is like a Marxist idea, where the companies who are in for a for-profit business entered into socio-political <coughs> target comes in. They're going to have, tra they're gonna have uh, sexless bathrooms, transgender bathrooms, all of those things. So it was really just like it was a rapid dominoes that, that was beginning to fall super fast. And so those, those dominoes were beginning to fall, and now it's economically coerced and things along those lines. But then COVID hits, and then George Floyd hits, and the conversation got, the cultural conversation got reoriented back towards, at the cultural level, race. And then um, CRT, critical race theory, became a huge thing that was talked about in the last two years or so. And that became the only thing getting talked about. But what that was doing was that was paving the way for um, uh, critical sexual studies. It goes by different names. And that's what we're seeing right now, is the George Floyd conversation kind of died down. BLM got exposed. And, but it's still going on, but then now you have this. So it's, so it's it, this, these, these past few years are hyper volatile. Things are changing super fast. And the, the Disney Florida battles, if you see the news at all and all the stuff going on and the Disney, you know, recordings that get put out that now 50% of shows are gonna have an LGBTQ plus person in it and, and all of those things where, um, yeah, and that's grooming children and more. So that kind of ties Katie to the question about Disney Plus, the cartoons. We can't just let our kids watch stuff. So, so it's always been around, but it's really explosive in the last eight years, in my estimation. Um, God, all right. Um, so something that was said about, um, oh, yes, I have a couple of different comments. So I have a lot on my mind. Um, another thing about most of the youth, uh, the explosion in LGBT uh, minorities in this generation, right? Uh, a lot of them are also a lot of lonely kids who end up seeing these kids who, have, who, are, who come out as gay in their school and then they have, end up having a bunch of gay friends and they're like, I want a bunch of gay friends too. And so they come out as either gay or transgender, um, which is something that, what happened to Christianity, right? Why, doesn't, why don't Christian, want lonely kids see Christians and ha hanging out with other Christians? And this is because Christians are being suppressed online and our culture is being suppressed in schools and that's why there's no atheist kids, you know, lonely kids who are saying, you know what, those are good communities. There's a lot of oppression there. Um, another thing that was said was, uh, oh, um, when it comes to the, the stuff, uh, that the standard that are going to be teach, taught by kids, you just go to the uh, who, 
the, the website and they'll have a whole bunch of really horrible things that they're saying this is a standard that you need to be teaching your kids and it's just absolute complete grooming uh, and I don't, I don't really know what the heck's going to happen to the schools at this point because they're going to be forced to tie. You know, my aunt is a teacher in California, and I don't really know how long she's going to last. <laughs> she's teaching in elementary, and it's like um, there's a certain point where they're going to start forcing her to start teaching, and she's a Christian. So uh, another that, thing was that was, a, that was a big conversation piece at our men's retreat. Part of it was the coercion that's going to be arising not just in school, but also the jobs that you take. So even places in town where what you'll be required to do as an employee to affirm or be an activist for LGBTQ plus matters or any other critical theory matter, which I know we haven't talked about, is going to be coercive to the point where, where Christians um, are going to either get fired or have to lose their jobs and it's, it's coming sooner than we expect. But we're also at this cultural inflection point, meaning that critical theory and critical social justice theory and critical fat studies and all the, all the critical theory, which I haven't defined in this tonight, but what it's, what it's doing is there is functionally half the world or half the West that knows that it's nonsense and sees it for what it is, people who aren't even believers. So I think that we're entering volatile times as a society and culture. I'm concerned with the upcoming election, the presidential election. Agreed. And so because of those things, we, I think especially for you young people, the, the younger you are is like you're beginning to enter the work world and enter the workforce. I strongly encouraging finding godly Christian employers or starting your own business and then employing other Christians so that you can withstand possible persecution coming. That's exact. That's actually something that I'm already in the process of doing. I'm already in the process of making my own game company because the company that makes my engine uh, is very like all about inclusivity and stuff like that. So it's like it's very upsetting. Uh, but another thing I wanted to talk about was uh, an issue that I tend to have with with Christians, so-called Christians that claim to be Christians, but they say and they they fully support homosexuality and uh, that while not being while not being homosexual. They're okay. They're just advocating for it, um, saying it's okay. You know, we're all sinners, and I tell them, no, you can't be pushing, you can't be pushing or promoting. You know, like a gay a gay celebrity that you like, because they're gay and they're promoting that homosexuality, and they say, well, G Jesus died for us, and we all sin, so their sins are taken care of. That's the number one problem that I encounter with Christians who are not acting the way a Christian should be. And they always say, well, I sin every day. I sin, uh, you know, 40 times a day. How, uh, our, our sins, our homosexual sins, if they believe in God, then they're fine. That is the number one problem that I have with people. Well, it's, it's important, you know, what I would say a person who says something like that is actually you are still in your sins, um, be, being careful about saying for whom Christ died, that his death is only effective for those who repent and believe. And then what does happen with a lot of Christians is they will harbor sin in their life, right? So when I was in college and a close friend um, 
was struggling sexually with his girlfriend, who's now his wife. They were trying to be pure, but they, they fell. And because they, they uh, engaged in sexual sin before they were married, the guilt that came with that, so they would say to others, like we, had, we actually had a, this conversation in our house our, because uh, there was another roommate, a girl who claimed to be a Christian but wasn't, was having her boyfriend staying over. Mm. But they didn't want to say anything because they knew they had their own sin in their life. And the thing is, Jesus talks about that, right? We don't judge hypocritically, right? It's the, it's the speck and plank in our eye. So take, this, take repent of our sin out, but then do you need to tell someone that they, gotta, they have, um, or the speck in their eye, rather. Take the log out of your eye and take the speck out of theirs. We, yeah. have, to, we have to do that. Reverse. Yeah. Any other questions? Questions? Um, yeah, so this is kind of going back to a while ago you mentioned um, sort of the idea of, like, the state becoming God in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I've heard it talked about of the idea of, like, wokeism as religion. Um, and it seems like and it seems like with Obergefell that sort of makes sense of, of the state said yes, and so everyone's like, yes, this is moral now because we think that legal equals moral. Um, would you see that ever, like, I've, I've heard it proposed, but I'm not sure what I think in terms of um, of it sort of becoming, like, a First Amendment, like, Establishment Clause issue of, like, the government establishing religion in terms of these woke ideologies. Um, would you see that as something that makes sense, or, or would that not fall under the idea of religion, even though it is what they worship? Like, if the, if the government, in support of LGBTQ+, establishment or religion clause, they would finagle a way around it. So they don't believe the Bible. So, so we, we know that every person's a worshiper, and we know Romans 1, we've, we've already heard it, that, that um, all sin is a result of wrong worship. So in this case, we saw the LGBTQ+. I don't think anybody would, would be sophisticated enough to really argue that. I think at like an academic level, people will be arguing about this is state religion, you're acting religiously, da-da-da-da. And it potentially could be, well, I just, I don't see it happening. Is it something like worthy of pursuit though? What's that? Is it something that's worthy of pursuit? Is it, is it I think it could, I think it'd be a very interesting to produce, pursue like even academically. It'd make a good PhD dissertation. <laughs> Uh, to like to think through that, but then to be able to distill that at a popular level and say like, hey, look, we're seeing all the trappings. So, for example, um, completely different vein, but I'm listening to non-Christians on interviews talking about climate and change, and they're all using um, religious language. And then those who are going um, so-called climate deniers, going after climate alarmists, are noting how the alarmists are exhibiting all the traits of religiosity, like a, like a church. So that same concept could be potentially applied to actually any group, but in this case, yeah, LGBTQ+. Any other questions? Okay, well, guys, I would, I would encourage you, if you want, you know, read, read through this, because this is, this, is, this is real, and 
the reason that we're doing this and all the other stuff, this all builds on each other, is so that you can have a, a framework in your mind so that when you are engaged in that conversation, when you're praying, when you're trying to figure out how to think about something, this is all meant to be biblical fuel to see how this kind of fits together. And that by God's grace, for you to have the wisdom how to engage with a friend, a family member, a coworker, a fellow student, whatever, who, who believes these things. And um, a delusion, by definition, is a fixed false belief. That's what a delusion is, fixed false belief. We've seen a number of texts tonight about how uh, our hearts deceive us. So a deceived person doesn't know they're deceived, right? The thing about being blind to your blindness is that you're blind to it. You don't know it. So there's a long game, a prayerful plan to um, one of the guys, like Jacob, who comes on these nights. He was talking about some, some co-workers that he has. And the co-workers have stickers and flags and all the LGBTQ stuff, uh, you know, around. And they've asked him why he doesn't have it. Um, and he began to explain it to them. And one of the things that we were talking about was basically he wants to um, love them so well. He wants to persecute his enemies with good. So he wants to love them so well that they, that it's going to be really hard for them to say that he's a bad guy because he doesn't want to be a jerk. And he wants to be inflexible and unyielding on gospel truth. So the gospel is offensive, but he doesn't want to be offensive. So that when they hate Jesus and hate the gospel and start to hate him, they're going to have a hard time hating him because he was so Christ-like to him, basically. Now, I think that's a good way to think about approaching these things, is just having a, being um, loving and firm, honest and wise, right? Um, innocent, innocent, as a, as a, not innocent as a serpent. Yes, Diane, thank you. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Yeah, not the other way around. Well, uh, Lord, once again, we just thank you for this time together. This is a sensitive topic. It's a volatile topic, but it's necessary and true. And Lord, we know that only Jesus, his word and his ways, his gospel, gives life to the fullness for all of life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would just give us the wisdom and the charity and all that we need to speak your gospel truthfully, courageously, and lovingly, and timely. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The end. <laughs>